DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, another political shock in the Netherlands as coalition talks break down. History is made. Northern Ireland has its first ever Republican First Minister. Ms. Adele, are you willing to take up the office of First Minister and affirm the terms of the Pledge of Office? Then, SUVs non merci. Has Paris just signed the death knell of gas-guzzling vehicles in urban spaces? Well, peut-être. All that, plus a trip to the museum. Coming up. It's the biggest political earthquake to have shaken the Netherlands since, well, since the last one, which was actually less than three months ago, when the anti-Islam firebrand politician Gerd Wilders and his Party for Freedom, of which incidentally Wilders is the sole member, emerged as the clear winners of Dutch national elections. This time, the headlines were not made by Wilders himself, but by the centrist politician Peter Omtzigt, who announced on Tuesday evening that his upstart centrist party, New Social Contract, was withdrawing from coalition talks, leaving the Dutch political landscape even more uncertain than before. Stefan Boss was following the developments closely for us and gave me this assessment of the situation. Yes, indeed a political shock, because uh, the hopes of the anti-Islam Dutch lawmaker Geert Wilders to become basically the prime minister of the Netherlands, now they are quickly dwindling because the new social contract party of Peter Omtzigt basically walked away from the negotiations. Omtzigt said that he had not been informed about the true state of the nation's economy And uh, the budget, he said that he got the figures uh, too late. But I have to also say that critics um, view it as a way for him to get out of the talks after he earlier questioned Wilder's commitment uh, to the constitution and the rule of law. And of course, it has everything to do with his uh, fierce anti-Islam rhetoric. Now, I also have to say that Wilders, realizing that he was under pressure, agreed actually to uh, walk away from his uh, previous suggestions, such as a ban on mosques and Islamic schools and uh, even the Koran, which he once uh, compared to Donald Duck cartoons. Now, he uh, no longer says it should be banned. So he made a lot of compromises in that sense, but apparently it wasn't uh, going far enough for Peter Omtzigt. That's really interesting. Um, Peter Omtzigt was the surprise centrist candidate who uh, was the other sort of big news story of the Dutch elections. Where has this left him and uh, his new social contract party? Yes, indeed. And actually, we were uh, covering it uh, last year, you know, when he uh, came. Uh, with his we were party. expecting him to be the story, Stefan. I mean, <laughs> in common with a lot of people. <laughs> yes, but you know the uh, the the, the Omtzigt, uh, was really uh, trying to promote a new 
culture, a new political culture, a new way of uh, of acting in politics. But I have to say that uh, some journalists were quite critical uh, with uh, his behavior. They say, uh, you know, we, we, we were not quickly informed enough. And also they were asking, actually, his colleagues, is this now the new culture that you are just walking away uh, when it gets difficult? So there's quite some pressure on Omtzigt as well. I have to say that he made uh, quite a, a headlines in the Netherlands because it was because of him well and and a few others but he played a major role in for instance uncovering the the child benefit scandal uh, you know when many parents were basically prosecuted because of their ethnic background quite frankly by the tax authorities he uncovered it and he a lot of other scandals he saw so you know it was quite someone who was very much uh, respected and still is respected in the Netherlands but people are still wondering why he is walking away now at this crucial moment for the Netherlands because without him there it's very difficult to form a government and also they say it may even mean new elections and the fear is among the critics that uh, Geert Wilders will even do better than now I mean at the moment he has 37 seats but opinion polls already suggest his party may even get 50 seats which would be one third of the parliament of the lower house of parliament so it's quite something people are watching now at the moment. Right. OK. Well, a rocky road ahead and uh, we'll be keeping an eye on, on the situation as it develops. Thank you so much for joining me to give us that um, that recap, uh, Stefan. You're welcome. Stefan Boss there. We'll no doubt be checking back in with him in the coming weeks as the situation develops. Now, coalition talks in the Netherlands may have broken down, but in Northern Ireland, something very different has been happening this week. Something historic, in fact. After a shutdown of almost two years, politicians have once again returned to Stormont, home of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Heading the power-sharing government as First Minister and Deputy First Minister are two women from either side of the political divide – both from families with deep roots in the Troubles. Here's Lucy Taylor with the story. 76 members voted, of which 67 voted aye, 88.2%. 33 nationalists voted, of which 25 voted aye, 75.8%. 26 unionists voted... These halls have been quiet for almost two years. The business of government carried out much further away in London, or not at all. The motion is carried by cross-community support. Mr Edmund Pitts is elected as Speaker of this Assembly. But a new deal to ease post-Brexit tensions means that finally Northern Ireland's Assembly is open again. There's so much to do out there for the public and I trust that we will all put our shoulders to the wheel to do that to the best of our ability. And I truly hope that this assembly uh, never is suspended again. But some things have changed. For the first time, the largest party in the assembly is nationalist, although unionists still have more seats overall. It means the first first minister from the party Sinn Féin, which campaigns for a united Ireland and was once the political wing of the militant group, the IRA. Ms O'Neill, are you willing to take up the office of First Minister and affirm the terms of the Pledge of Office? I confirm that I am willing to take up the office of First Minister and I affirm the Pledge of Office is set out in Schedule 4 to the Northern Ireland Act. 
The new First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, was once a teenage mother who started working for Sinn Féin after the Good Friday peace deal in 1998 and rose up through its ranks. She comes from a family of prominent Irish Republicans, including her father, who had links to the IRA, and a cousin who was shot dead by the British Army in 1991, while allegedly on his way to launch an attack on Protestant workers. Today opens the door to a future, a shared future. I am honoured to stand here as First Minister. We mark a moment of equality. O'Neill says in office she will serve everyone. As an Irish Republican, I pledge cooperation and genuine honest effort with all those colleagues of a British, of a unionist tradition who charged the union. This is an assembly for all. And she may need to, because under power sharing, her role has equal power with that of Deputy First Minister now held by the Democratic Unionist Party representative Emma Little-Pengeli. A barrister, she too is steeped in the history of the Troubles from the other side of the divide. Her family home was once damaged by a bomb, and her father was accused of arms trafficking in the 1980s by the Loyalist Ulster Resistance Group. Michelle O'Neill and I come from very different backgrounds. But regardless of that, for my part... I will work tirelessly to ensure that we can deliver for all in Northern Ireland. I recognise that for many today, it is an historic moment with the nomination of Michelle O'Neill and myself as First But for now, both women say they're committed to working together to improve lives in Northern Ireland, with a lot to catch up after the shutdown. Elsewhere in the Assembly, there are calls for changes to the Good Friday Agreement to try to prevent the suspension of the Assembly happening again. It's not just the last two years, of the last seven years, five have been down. So in the last seven years, only two years. David Honeyford is a member for the Alliance Party, now the third biggest in the Assembly, which is neither nationalist nor unionist. He says his party will campaign for reform. We've been calling for for many years, and uh, the Good Friday Agreement was 25 years old last year. Then within the framework of that agreement, we need to, to look at it and reform it that no single party can can ever hold the institutions around them again, and we will continue to proceed um, that reform. The new First and Deputy First Ministers have focused their first week on the economy. I think we certainly have a, a large entry of issues to get to, some of which I'm... Their appointment is a moment in history. And we're up for that challenge Absolutely. and we're up for a very constructive working relationship uh, to try to tackle those issues together and with our executive colleagues around the executive table. But while they work to find shared ground, the ride could be bumpy ahead. Lucy Taylor, DW, in the UK. We'll be hearing from the Republic of Ireland too just a little later on in the programme as we explore an ambitious exhibition currently showing at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. First up though, the people of Paris have voted in a referendum to make the lives of SUV drivers very difficult indeed. Park one of these gas guzzlers in the centre of town for six hours and that will cost you €225. John Lawrenson reports on a move which is being watched closely by other European cities keen to crack down on pollution. On Paris's pretty left bank, in a narrow street called, rather wonderfully, Rue Madame or Mrs Street, 
A giant white Volvo XC90 hybrid glides noiselessly into a parking space. Well, I say in, the back end is more out. Inside, a young mother and her tennis-year-old son. She gets out and asks me if I know where the nearest parking meter is. I say, funny you should say that, and we get talking. The threatened new charges will apply to fossil fuel cars over 1.6 tonnes and e-cars over 2 tonnes, so she will have to pay. She says the charge is unfair because she doesn't really have a choice. We didn't get this car to drive in Paris, which I don't do very often, but because we have big dog, so for long journeys we can't take the plane and it's difficult to take the train. This is our way of travelling. I mentioned this lady when on the steps of the Opera House in one of the areas where Paris traffic is densest, I meet up with Tony Ronucci, executive director of the anti-air pollution non-profit Respire, Breathe in English. They always have an excuse, he mutters. He thinks this referendum is a great idea. The idea of that measure is to make people less willing to use their SUV or their large car. And it's important because we see now, for example, about air pollution, we see now that the majority of particles emitted are from the non-exhaust, the tires, the brakes, the abrasion. When the vehicle is heavier, they emit more of these particles. Down in the metro, which is how, says Tony Ronucci, people should get around. But Philippe Nozier, president of a non-profit called 40 Million Motorists, says this is not always possible and that this referendum is fundamentally unfair. As usual, Mayor Anne Hidalgo has got Parisians to vote. But Parisians mostly don't have cars and when they do, won't be made to pay higher parking charges if they stay in a district where they live. It's people who live in the suburbs who didn't get to vote in this referendum, who often need their cars to get into town, and who will have to pay this tax. But Paris's anti-car crusade is improving the quality of life for many people in Paris. Less noise in some neighbourhoods for a start. The Rue de Rivoli, a long and wide east-west road that used to roar with traffic, now sounds like this. Mayor Hidalgo has already drastically limited the space given to cars in this town by cutting street parking places and extending cycle and bus lanes. She's limited access to the city for older, more polluting cars, increased the price of car parking, introduced parking charges for motorised two-wheelers and imposed a speed limit of 19 miles an hour on most roads. For people out on the streets of Paris, this new measure is either patisserie metaphor time, the cherry on the cake, or takes the biscuit. I think it's fair. I have a big car. My son uses it more than I do for his children. As for me, I always have things that need moving, plants, trees and so on. So I need my SUV. But if you have a big car, you have to bear the consequences. It's true that Paris is becoming more and more uh, pedestrian and, uh, and as you can see, I'm a uh, a cyclist I don't know if that's how you say it so less cars for me is always a good news uh, for Paris for me yes I think SUV don't don't belong in, in great city like Paris 
suis pour qu'on foute un peu la paix aux gens avec I ça. am in favor of letting people live their lives when it comes to things like this. Leave people in peace. Laissez les gens tranquilles. Mary Dalgo says she hopes this new measure against big, heavy cars will inspire other towns and cities in France and elsewhere to do the same. Paris's new parking charges will be introduced on September the 1st. John Lawrenson, DW, Paris. I wonder if Dublin has an SUV problem. That's where we're headed next. That's here with me, Kate Laycock, on Inside Europe. Self-Determination, a Global Perspective is the name of a wide-ranging exhibition currently showing at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, IMA, in Dublin. The exhibition focuses on the nation-states that emerged in the wake of the First World War, exploring the role of art and artists in relation to the expression of national identities, nation-building and statecraft. Sebastian Stevenson was there to check it out for us. The island of Ireland's partial independence from Great Britain that was instigated by the Easter 1916 rising against British colonial rule in Ireland occurred during a very troubled era. The Great War, as it would come to be known, had engulfed the globe and would continue for another year, six months and eleven days. It was a time of unparalleled and irreversible change across Europe. In the aftermath of the Great War, Four empires collapsed and new nations were born amidst their ruins. I'm in the East Wing of IMA, a former military barracks for Declan Clark's work, dated 2023. It is a 47-minute video that shows the Ardna Krushna hydropower plant which was commissioned by the then-new Irish Free State in 1925. This plant was, at the time, a rallying point for the resourcefulness of an Irish nation. This is only a tiny slice of an exhibition that features 114 artists and seven especially commissioned new works. The exhibition encompasses architectural models and renderings, contemporary sculpture, postage stamps, theatre scripts and production sketches, and of course, video art. On opening night, I met up with Annie Fletcher, director of IMA. We started to imagine kind of about three years ago, what would it be like to kind of contextualise Irish history and art history and this amazing moment of the emergence of the Irish state within a more global context in a moment of moments where so many other countries were doing the same. Uh, it was like after the catastrophe of the First World War, it was a moment of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it was kind of a, a noisy moment where, where lots of people and communities and emergent kind of publics were kind of thinking about how to redraw their ideas of how the state might look. So it was a very exciting time. In 1916, the Easter Rising saw Irish Republicans attempt to seize Dublin back from the British. Although unsuccessful in itself, this rebellion would eventually lead to the creation of the Irish Free State, the start of the Ireland that exists today. 
Several of the signatories of the 1916 proclamation and numerous associates and supporters were writers, poets and playwrights. Artists working in other media were also sympathetic to the cause of Irish independence and did much to articulate it. The importance of both language and images to shape our sense of national identity is something that is well understood by another country featured in this exhibition, Ukraine. We wanted to participate with this project with the special collection which gathered artworks of Ukrainian artists of this early period of late 1920s and early 1930s, which was classified during the USSR period and was, and was taken from us. Ukraine first declared its independence with the invasion of Bolsheviks in late 1917. It was around this time that a movement called Boychukism emerged around an artist named Mikhailo Boychuk. Boychukism took elements of Ukrainian folk art and mixed them up with neo-Byzantine imagery and monumentalism, creating a uniquely Ukrainian form of expression. Nadia Tinchuk is a researcher at the National Museum of Ukraine. A lot of artworks represented here belong to the Boychuk movement, which was very original and very unique, I might say, school of art developed by Boychuk, who united young artists who started to develop their own very creative manner and style, which originates, uh, and that is interesting thing, because mostly when we speak about modernism, it rejects the tradition. But Boychuk wanted to return the tradition to find the roots. This made Boychukism suspect in the eyes of its Soviet occupiers, which favoured socialist realism and the propagation of a single communist identity. Boychuk art was suppressed and several of its practitioners were eventually executed. Now, with Ukraine once again engaged in a battle for existential survival, Boychukism feels more relevant than ever. Relevant and, as Nadia Tinchuk reminds me, beautiful. Vivid colours, very powerful and monumentalistic traditions in describing and building the image, uh, you know, making some experiments with form and colour and shape to make that impression of simple but very strong images you can see. Boychukism was a new page in Ukrainian art history, but the future remains a blank page. Is the next chapter of Ukrainian identity and language being authored right now? Or will it be erased? Perhaps we can look to Ireland's trajectory for clues. Today, Ireland has its place in the world and is now on good terms with its neighbour. But the Irish language, suppressed for centuries by British occupation, has failed to be revived in everyday use. It will take the determination of a nation and its people to ensure that it endures. Sebastian Stevenson, DW, Dublin. Before I forget, just time for this. Now, recent Spotify polling has established that the typical Inside Europe listener, and yes, I know there's probably no such thing, prefers Killian Murphy to Colin Farrell and has either changed their diet or would consider changing their diet to help the planet. And no, I do not believe that those two things are connected. This week, I have a quote for you. Europe was created by history 
America was created by philosophy. Who do you think said it? Was it British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, US President Abraham Lincoln or French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre? Inside Europe is, of course, also available on all the other usual platforms, including YouTube via DW's new podcast channel. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Coming up in the next half hour, from Pristina to Belgrade, it's been a rocky week in the Balkans. Aftershock, a visit to Hatay a year after Turkey's devastating earthquakes. Night raves and winter swimming. Southern Estonia begins its culture capital year with a splash. And trespassers beware. You're about to enter the ancient German heartland of all things dragon related. My heart pumped for a bit. You you really sort of get pulled in to the enormity of this beast and the power uh, that this, this animal has. Don't worry, we can hold hands if you like. Broadcasting from Germany. This is Inside Europe. Tensions in the Balkans were ratcheted up a notch this week when the Kosovan government in Pristina imposed a ban on Serbian currency and instructed its Serb minority to adopt the euro. The move was greeted with concern by the EU, which criticised Pristina for taking unilateral steps that it fears will lead to a further deterioration of relations with Serbia. To find out just why this currency ban is causing so much consternation. I spoke to our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay. Well, what we've had in Kosovo is basically an announcement from the central bank saying that they would no longer allow any currency to be used in Kosovo apart from the euro. And that came into force at the start of this month. And It was only announced, this move, halfway through January. So there's been no time, really, for people to adapt. And if people are wondering, what's going on? What what is it about the euro? Well, the euro is the currency which is used by most of Kosovo. It's, as far as the government is concerned, it's the official currency of Kosovo. But, of course, Kosovo also has a Serbian minority. 
and they're still very much used to using Serbian dinars as their money. So if you go to the uh, north of Kosovo and the four municipalities north of the Ibar River and you want to buy a cup of coffee, you'll pay for it in dinars. Um, if you stay in a hotel, if you go for a meal, all of that payment in dinars. Uh, but it, it goes further than that, of course. People are used to receiving their payments in Serbian dinars. And of course, there's a great deal of consternation among those communities about what they're actually going to do practically with this new regulation being brought in in such a sh- with such short notice. Guy, can I just ask a question about that? Because this was an aspect I found quite confusing. So you have people living in Kosovo, but receiving social security payments from the government in Serbia. That's correct. And the reason for this is, let's remind everybody that Serbia does not recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence from Serbia, which it made in 2008. And Kosovo Serbs largely don't recognise that declaration of independence either. So as far as they're concerned, they live in Serbia. Their government is the government in Belgrade, and it's not the government of the Republic of Kosovo in Pristina. And a lot of those people are still working within the Serbian system. So, for example, in the north of Kosovo, the healthcare and education institutions, hospitals, schools, universities, health centres, they're all part of the Serbian system. So people working in those institutions are receiving their income from the Serbian authorities. As well as that, because these people are Serbian citizens, if they qualify for social benefits or for pensions under Serbian regulations, they receive those uh, as well. And of course, they've been receiving those payments, those salaries, those social benefits in Serbian dinars. So that's why this is really an existential issue, a lot of Kosovo Serbs feel. If they're being cut off from the source of their income, how are they going to live? Jovan Avradasavljevic runs the new social initiative, an organisation that tries to build trust between Kosovo Serbs and the Albanian majority. This is directly impacting the livelihood of the people, and I have to say, of the most vulnerable groups of the society, and not only Kosovo Serbs. So this government is very keen on inserting this full-on sovereignty without taking into consideration the needs of the communities. Kosovo Serbs, Kosovo Bosnian, Gorani, Turks, Roma, Shkali, Egyptian, but Albanians as well, because they're also beneficiaries of Serbian healthcare system, Serbian pension system, and so on. So you have 30,000 people, a little bit over, are actually directly employed in the Serbian system operating in Kosovo, not only Kosovo Serbs. Around the same amount of people are receiving pensions from the Serbian system in Kosovo, and um, a large number of people are receiving different types of social aid. So we're coming up to a number of around 90,000 people that are directly receiving some sort of financial compensation for different reasons. And it's not just people in Kosovo that are concerned. Josip Borrell, for example, the EU's high representative for foreign affairs, has described Pristina's actions here as concerning. And the particular cause for concern was the way in which they had been put through at very little notice with very little preparation, very little time for people to adapt. So the international partners have been alarmed. They're saying that this, of course, will make life difficult for Kosovo Serbs and that it risks raising tensions. And we've seen tensions being extremely high over the past couple of years. And tensions remain high because the government in Pristina is trying to assert its sovereignty over these ethnic Serb areas in North Kosovo in particular. 
But these are issues which are supposed to be dealt with through a dialogue which the European Union is meant to be overseeing between the governments of Kosovo and Serbia. They're meant to be normalising their relations through dialogue, not through one side imposing um, their idea of the way things should be. And of course, EU relations with Belgrade are also under strain at the moment following elections in December, which international observers regarded as being unfair. Now, on Tuesday, Guy, the Serbian parliament convened for the first time since those elections, and it was, I believe, quite a rowdy affair. It was indeed. So opposition MPs uh, decided they were not going to remain in the chamber while the members of the governing party, the progressive party, took their oaths to become members of parliament. So the opposition MPs withdrew. They actually took their oaths of uh, office in a corridor in the National Assembly. And of course, this has all been portrayed, depending on which media outlets you look at in in Serbia, as either the opposition causing disruption and not respecting the dignity of parliament, or on the other hand, um, the, the members of the opposition parties once again highlighting the issue that they believe that the elections uh, in, in December were the victim of irregularities orchestrated by the Progressive Party. And it has to be said that they're backed up in their concerns by international and local election observers um, who have said that they believe there was vote rigging, vote bussing and media dominance by the Progressive Party, uh, which restricted the ability of uh, Serbian voters to see all sides of the argument when it came to casting their votes. Our Balkans correspondent, Guy Delaunay there. A year ago this week, twin earthquakes devastated southern Turkey and northern Syria. A few months later, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was re-elected on the back of his promise to rebuild over 300,000 homes within the year. Perhaps unsurprisingly, that unlikely goal has been missed. To find out more about the situation on the ground, Yelenia Gosseli visited Antakya, the capital of the Hatay region. Of the 53,000 earthquake fatalities across 11 provinces in Turkey, some 20,000 were from Hatay, and of all Turkish cities, Antakya was the hardest hit. A year since two strong earthquakes on February 6 raised much of Antakya to the ground. Some life has returned to the old bazaar, previously the centre of life in the city founded 2,300 years ago. Despite a mass exodus after the quakes, some shop owners have reopened in the ruins of their old stores. Restoration work is planned to save some of the historic mosques, synagogues and Byzantine mosaics. On the main Kurtulush street, a couple of historic hotels have turned their signs back on. Now the dust has settled, it is easier to imagine a future where the city will rise from the rubble. 
Its losses, however, have been huge. A year on, 700,000 people live in container camps, while thousands more have left the region or live with relatives and in temporary accommodation. In Antakya, many are now fearful they may never be able to return. They can see that reconstruction is happening, but they say they're being excluded from the process. This area used to be completely filled with buildings before the earthquake, but now there are none left except that one. The ground here is very bad because it's the bank of the river, but this is the most valuable place in Hatay from an economic perspective. So they are building in the same place again, but this time it will cost a lot. Local lawyer Ejavit Alkan is taking the government to court in order to force the authorities to release information about what is actually being built here. A master plan for the reconstruction of the city, led by a renowned Istanbul-based architecture firm, has not yet been made public. At the same time, the government has declared 207 hectares of land on the west bank of the river, where thousands of buildings have collapsed, as a reserve area for construction. The territory declared as a reserve is a very large area. People in that area lost everything, lost their jobs, all family ties. At the moment, the city is almost destroyed. If even in cities like Istanbul and Ankara people can't afford to buy new homes, to expect earthquake survivors to pay an unknown amount of money for newly built buildings is cruel and against human rights. I worked as a driver for 45 years. Everything I earned since 1975 went into this house, from Siberia to England, everything. I worked and raised six children, and my home now is gone, unfortunately. We don't know what will happen, my friend. We can't get a straight answer from anyone. Turkey's annual inflation rate hit 64.8% in December, with impacts on construction costs as well as rents and general cost of living. After coming under fire for the government's slow initial response to the crisis, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan promised to rebuild more than 300,000 homes within a year across the earthquake region. The Environment and Urbanization Ministry said in December that construction had begun on 307,000 homes, but only 46,000 are likely to be delivered soon. The improbable target appears to have missed. The government's social housing agency, Toki, has been building five-story blocks on the hills around the city, in new satellite neighborhoods in rural areas with little to no infrastructure. Many fear that in the end they'll have no choice but to bid for a place there. Mektap Aslani Rey, a member of the board of the Hatay Chamber of Architects and Engineers, says one of the problems is that local and national authorities are not talking to each other and not involving locals in the decision-making process. My main concern as an architect, as a local, is to set up life here again. When I say life, I mean I want people to come to a more beautiful, more earthquake-resistant city. Sure, Toki builds strong buildings, but we need these buildings to be more in the character of old Hatay homes so people would want to live here, people would want to return. 
If Antakya will be rebuilt, then it should be for all its citizens, people here say. After all, a city is more than just buildings. Elena Gostoli for DW in Hatay. Survival and resilience are key themes of Tartu's European Capital of Culture Year. In southern Estonia, the celebrations are in full swing as the region basks in the shared glory of Tartu's Year in the Sun. Our reporter Ben Batka, always the first to jump at any opportunity to sign up for any Estonia-related assignment, was of course in attendance at the opening event and much more besides. Alustame. Let the show begin. After more than four years of planning and preparation, Tartu's Capital of Culture Year is here at last. So, what can we expect? Well, Tartu 2024 is taking place under the title Arts of Survival, which refers to the knowledge, skills and values that will help us lead a good life in the future. An historical slant on this theme was explored in an ambitious opening show staged both on and next to the frozen Emmerjörgi River. Some 10,000 onlookers were taken on a journey through time and space, from the magnificent city that was Tartu before World War II through its destruction and post-war reconstruction to present-day topics like the environment and the war in Ukraine. I have been local here like, uh, let's say, 10 years. And this is the most massive thing that has been in, uh, in the, this uh, riverside. Probably 10,000 people. Yeah, I've never seen so many people here. It's, it's amazing. You really see how this culture capital connects people. And uh, everybody feels that there's, there's something that um, is for them. Silver Sepp is a musician who builds instruments from natural materials, such as the wooden ski he was carrying with him, and which he also uses to hit the slopes. Seb says using the Emmerjörgi River for the opening ceremony symbolizes Estonians' deep connection to nature. And one of the ways he and many other Estonians cultivate this relationship is winter swimming. Expect a lot of that in the coming year too, especially in March, where the Estonian capital, Tallinn, will be hosting the Winter Swimming World Championship. So, how are you feeling? Scared. <laughs> But I know it will be uh, better when you get in. I'll leave you to it. Good luck. Okay. Oh my god. How was it? Oh, it's freezing. <laughs> in a good way? Or? Uh, we don't know that yet. <laughs> With one in five Estonians reportedly practicing it, winter swimming is an increasingly popular endurance sport. We welcome everyone to join the procession. Back at the Emmerjörgi River after the end of the opening ceremony, I follow a procession to the after-party at the Estonian National Museum. Spearheaded by a mutant car called Reisivsil, Estonian for traveling hedgehog, thousands of people walked and danced over slippery and slushy roads and sidewalks through Tartu for well over an hour. It has been a completely fascinating evening, never seen things like this done in the city. I have been living here my whole life. My favorite part had to be that some of the songs were sang in dialect, which is from southern Estonia. And it's very special also that Ukrainian nation was also present there and singing for them. Representation of togetherness and like we are all one. After dancing our way past Tartu landmarks like the 19th century St. Peter's Church, 
we finally reach our destination, the country's largest museum built on the land of a former Soviet military base and airfield. Next morning, the city feels deserted. After enjoying a yummy Estonian-style hangover breakfast and a city tour, I head to Pulva, located around a 45-minute train or bus ride southeast of Tartu, the town is home to some 6,000 people. It's one of 20 smaller southern Estonian municipalities sharing the culture capital program, which Tartu won on behalf of the region. Usually in Pulva are only Estonian people, and it's very rare to hear other languages here. I think they're quite good uh, hosts, and uh, we're very, uh, very, very happy about that we are part of the program. With the exception of Russian, the border is only 30 kilometers away after all, foreign languages may be a rarity in Pulva, but that doesn't mean that everyone sounds the same. Expect diversity to feature heavily in the coming year, as southern Estonia showcases its five distinct dialects that each have their own folklore, clothes and dance traditions. And then there is the Seto people, an ethnic minority trying hard to preserve their ancient customs and beliefs. Most of the 26,000 Seto speakers live in southeast Estonia, the rest across the border in neighboring Russia. Each year in August, the people of Setoma, as they call their kingdom, decide who is to be the earthly representative of their mythical king Peko for the next 12 months. South of Estonia is a really wonderful place of spiritual, healing, beautiful landscapes, not so much people. Indre Cornell, who oversees the Tartu 2024 volunteer program, grew up in the nearby town of Veru. We have beautiful wetlands that have nature tracks in them where you can go 24-7. You also have the smoke sauna experience that has no chimney in it, but nobody dies in there. And you will have a beautiful fragrance of smoke around you when you come out of it. Also, the cradle of dance and song celebration is Tartu. People, regardless of gender and age, have started to kiss. Kissing Tarto is waiting for you. With a budget of 26 million euro, the capital of culture year in southern Estonia comprises more than 1,000 events, including a mass kissing action. And then there is Naked Truth, the world's first opinion festival held in saunas, and the play Business as Usual, inspired by money laundering scandals that rocked Estonian banking. So many dates for my diary. Ben Batke, DW, still in the Estonian city of Tartu. In the interests of fairness, I should perhaps add that there are three European capitals of culture this year. The Norwegian city of Boda, the first culture capital north of the Arctic Circle and the Austrian spa town of Bad Ischl. More culture is coming up next. Do beware of the dragon.
weekend marks our collective entry into the lunar year of the dragon. And you don't have to be in China to celebrate it. You could, for example, be in the small Bavarian town of Foot im Wald, where, make no mistake, there be dragons. Going back hundreds of years, in fact, as part of Germany's oldest folk play. I'm not going to be able to make it there myself, but Natalie Carney has just got back from recording a television piece about Germany's unofficial dragon capital. So I asked her to hold me tightly by the hand and take me on an imaginary journey into the dragon's lair. Well, when I was thinking about doing a story about dragons, I was told pretty early on that Furtenwald in the Bavarian forest was the place I needed to go. So I jumped online to see where this place was exactly. And it's about two and a half hour drive northeast of Munich, where I'm based. So I jumped in my car and, of course, took the lovely drive through the Bavarian countryside and all the way to the Bavarian forest, where you encounter a bunch of winding roads. It's a very, very picturesque area. However, this community sits right on the border with the Czech Republic. And it's quite small and you'd almost, you know, drive right past it and into the Czech Republic if it weren't for this big giant sign on the side of the road with the face of a dragon on it, which kind of pops out of nowhere in and amongst the trees. So it really kind of invites you into this this small community. Okay, so I've come through the forest with you. I've seen the dragon sign. I've not gone to the Czech Republic. I've stayed in Germany. How else am I going to realise that this is the German centre of dragon culture? What happens when I enter into the village? When you're driving into Furthenwald, I mean, it's, it's it looks like any other sort of small town across Germany. But what makes this little place special is there's this winding road that you take to get sort of up onto a hill, and that's where the town center is. And you come around this corner to all these colorful little buildings and everything you can imagine that is dragon related. There are, you know, steel uh, artifacts of dragons hanging off the sides of buildings, um, dragons painted on buildings themselves. And then you look into all the different stores and there's, there's little trinkets, there's foods. Everything is related to dragon, dragon beer, dragon pizza, dragon chocolate. Even the Rathaus, the city hall has this big giant emblem on the front of it with two men spearing a dragon. And of course, you can't forget the Dragon Hotel or or the Dragon Z, the Dragon Lake nearby. So, I mean, this whole community really sort of encompasses and 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 cherishes uh, their relationship with this uh, fantastical creature. Should I be scared? Because I've heard that one dragon in particular may be the Guinness Book of Records winning biggest mechanical dragon in the world. Well, yes. I mean, I'd have to say the most um, renowned, the most popular uh, resident of Furtenwald for sure would have to be Fanny. Now, Fanny is a sight to be seen, very much so. Fanny weighs about 11 tons, is 16 meters long with a wind span of about 12 meters. Fanny is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's largest four-legged screaming robot. And this thing really is an engineering feat. It's just remarkable.
The story behind this ginormous dragon, and actually the the entire community's uh, history and connection to dragons, dates back over 500 years. Five decades, Furtenwald has been um, connected to dragons. Uh, It all dates back to the Corpus Christi processions that used to promenade through town. These processions were done by a lot of young children, young boys, and um, they used to have fun with it. And they would then turn around after the procession and they would slay this big dragon. And they ended up going on to create a, a folk play about a dragon. And, and the dragon grew to develop and, and represent evil. So this play has carried on for over 500 years. Again, it's the longest running folk play in the entire country, whereby you've got a knight who slays and fights the dragon and for doing so he wins the heart of the lovely lady Um, and and what I find quite interesting too is how the community has sort of evolved the story over time Ah, fantastic and I I believe that you actually sort of asked the mayor some origin story questions as well what was his take on it when I met the mayor Sandro Bauer we did it against a very uh, quiet we could say sleeping dragon but it wasn't until they decided to wake this beast up after our interview and we got the full show My heart pumped for a bit. You you really sort of get pulled in to the enormity of this beast and the power uh, that this, this animal has. But what I find so interesting and what really helped with that was the attention that the engineers put in to making Fanny so lifelike. Uh, the facial expressions, for instance, um, you know, when, when, when Fanny is happy, uh, you know, the eyebrows will move in a certain way. The pupils uh, enlarge when Fanny is angry, is aggravated. You see the, the pupils get much smaller. So you really can be pulled in to the power that this fire-breathing dragon has. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for talking to me. I am, however, going to let the dragon have the last word. And so Fanny the dragon lived happily ever after. Just a quick reminder of our feedback address, Inside Europe at dw.com. Do give us a shout if you have any comments or ideas for the show. We really do always love hearing from you. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Siad Abu Sleiman. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. 